Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan, Janelle, and I are here with Elizabeth and Caitlin Masher-Mace. The topic tonight is reforming Western stereotypes on Buddhisms. You heard that right. A look at violence in the Buddhist world. How did Western people have that modern perception that we all stereotypically have about Buddhist? I mean, where, where did that come from? I'm curious. So there's a, there's a lot of different ways that came in, but a lot of it has to do with how Buddhism was inter- introduced to the West and especially to Europe. Um, as Europeans came into China and Sri Lanka and a lot of these Buddhist countries, they encountered these teachings, which were so foreign, dramatic religions were so foreign to Judeo-Christians, especially out of Europe, and they were confused. And so they started bringing the text back. And a lot of this actually has to do with inherent racism. And so there was a lot of assumptions that Asian people were less capable than whites. So you kind of see the same thing you see in Africa. And because of that, they couldn't understand their own texts. So you start seeing these texts coming back to Europe, and you start seeing them coming even to the Americas, and they're being interpreted by people in Victorian-style salons, uh, those that have a lot of money in opium, and get around and get a little bit baked and start reading, especially the Theravadan texts, and they start going through and building their own understandings of the Dharma. And what they wanted it to be is they this becomes a fetishization and exotication aspect of these faith structures and it becomes super super like oh this is super enlightening and everything else and these are super peaceful people and it's the exotic orient and everything else and so the buddhism plays into that and then you have the early japanese and chinese buddhists that are coming and trying to introduce it into the united states and so you guys got you have guys like dt suzuki who's an amazing teacher but he's pushing in Zen and he's pushing a specific meth- or method and message of Zen of very peaceful and sit on the cushion and everything's going to be great. And then you've got guys in the 60s, um, Jack Kerouac, those guys that are in Bolt, they're actually in Berkeley. They're actually coming to Shin temples, but they're taking away bits and pieces of what they want to understand and kind of integrating into the hippie movement. And so you see this really super passive peaceful thing that's mixed into the hippie movements it's mixed into the really like left-wing thought processes of the time and if you're a victorian lady sitting in the salon smoking opium and sipping on laudanum you know this sounds really good because your husband's off doing something and he hasn't touched you in like three years so (laughs) yep (laughs) it happens it happens so how about because we have such a predominant ex and current Christian listener base, if you will. Christianity in Japan, okay? Um, there's an extermination of Christians at some point. Let's let's go back, though. Let's go back within uh, the Christian the Christian missionary stories. Actually, kind of fascinating. I remember hearing about that in seminary, too. So start. let's start there and then lead toward Japanese Christian, uh, Buddhist Christian uh, relations today. Let's, so yeah, you're a great history teacher, by the way. Oh, thank so you. I, yeah, this this has been fun. History is my jam. I love this. <laughs> um, okay, so the the story of Christians in Japan starts in China. A lot of stories about Japan actually do start in China because Japan looked up to China as not the cultural superior, but rather the cultural big brother. And so China's got this much older culture than Japan does um, in certain ways. And Japan has looked to China for writing systems and for everything else. And so as a 
1500s roll around. You got to remember Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, not to find the West Indies, but rather to find China and to find spices. And this was a very important thing. Why was he going to China? Because there's a lot of great stuff in China. And so this was not a goal or a goal that was lost when Columbus hits, you know, Cuba and all those islands down there, it was still continuing on. And so we have Europeans working their way into China to not only get spices and silks and all these other amazing products, but to colonize and to take over and to fight. And Japan was really busy during this period of time because we were having, we, I'm once again Irish, but, um, Jodo Shinshu Buddhists and other Buddhists and other Japanese people were having these big fights in Japan for the control of the country. And so they weren't paying a whole lot of attention when you have Portuguese and Spanish missionaries and a little bit of the French, a little bit of the English, a little, definitely a lot of the Dutch showing up, especially in the extreme Western parts of the islands as it was really close to China and settling in and entering in Japan for trade and for you know, converting heathens because the heathens need to be converted. Um, and so you get into places like Nagasaki um, and other port cities like this, and they start um, not only performing a lot of trade, but coming in and converting a lot of Christians. And then you're seeing this a lot with uh, Jesuit, minister, uh, Jesuit ministers are coming over. A lot of other um, Catholic traditions are coming in, uh, mostly at that point. And they start converting a lot of Japanese to Christian. And for the Japanese uh, hierarchy, especially the daimyo and like the really high-ranking people of that time, the samurai, they saw this as a benefit because if they convert to Christianity, they're going to get better trade. Because you're going to trade much better with someone of the same religion versus one of those heathen Buddhists. And for them, religion had always been more of a fluid thing. So Buddhism and naturally is a little more fluid than some of your Judeo-Christian religions. And at the same time, everyone in Japan kind of practiced two religions at that point. So Buddhism is a religion for your death. The Buddha or the religion for your life is Shinto or the animistic religion, the multi, the polytheistic religion that is the native religion of Japan. And so you've got the Shinto religion that like every single thing has a God attached to it and everything else. And so you pray to the God of the mountain and the God of the, your mountain is different than a God of a different mountain. And you're praying for good luck. But at the same time, you're taking refuge in the Buddha for your rebirth into the next life. And these things worked hand in hand. And so adding Christianity in there for most of them in the beginning wasn't a big deal. And as this progresses in and gets deeper in Japanese culture, all of a sudden they stop being Buddhist. They stop being Christian or they stop being Shinto and they just are con- Catholic. They're just Christian at the time. And Japan's not paying a whole lot of attention to this because A, they're getting really good trade on goods they're not going to get. So this is how guns is in, guns are introduced and guns actually become a big part of Japanese warfare for the next 500 years. But it's kind of interesting because you see matchlocks still being used in the 1800s because that was the technology level they got. Uh, you see cannons, but really, really primitive cannons all that kind of stuff is still being used in Japan way later than it would be in the West because they're not getting this continually continuous input. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, and a lot of other tech, saddle tech, all this other really interesting stuff, food. Um, the word for bread in Japan is pawn because um, it comes from the Portuguese word for bread. And that's where a lot of the missionaries were coming from. And so Japan's not noticing this because 
Oda Nobunaga and Tokugawa Ieyasu are busy fighting and unifying the country into one big piece. And finally they do that and they turn around and they see a bunch of people in Kyushu and Shikoku and in Eastern or uh, Western Honshu that are Christian and are swaying, swearing fi- uh, fealty to the Pope. And that's a problem because they're not swearing fealty to the emperor and to the shogun. And the shogun didn't like that. And so the response to that is, we start some few selected killings, like get them in line, go ahead and selectively kill them. And so you have a huge crucifixion that happens um, outside the town of uh, Nagasaki. And actually there are a lot of beatified and um, saints that formed out of this. Um, I think it's 26 or 28 martyrs of Japan, 22 of which were native Japanese. And so there's actually a lot of native Japanese saints in the Catholic tradition from this act of crucifixion. They were considered martyrs. Um, that didn't completely work. And so the Tokugawa shogunate just said, go ahead, screw it, kill all of them. And they did. Um, they were pretty effective at it because if there's one thing, Japanese people were pretty dope at at that period of time where technology was pretty much level across the playing board for between them and the Europeans was warfare. You got to remember Japan prior to world war II had never lost a war to anyone except themselves. And they weren't going to lose to the Portuguese especially that far from their home playing field. So Christianity is pretty much forced down to the underground. And you've got something called the, uh, how do you say the word right? Kakeri Christian is kind of the Japanese way to say it. Um, These are hidden Christians. And these guys exist, um, especially in the island of Kyushu, which is the extreme southeast or southwestern island in Japan for the next 300, 400 years, and a lot of time they actually hid themselves as Jodo Shinshu Buddhists um, because we were already the peasants and the laity, and so it's pretty easy to hide yourself. So you'll actually, there's some really beautiful Jodo Shinshu art that when you flip over actually has, will have a crucifix on the back or will have negative impressions of a crucifix. So you can push something into it and pull it out, like clay or mud, and pull out, and there's a crucifix in there. Or you can open up the shrine in a special way, and there'll be a crucifix in there or hidden. Um, I think I saw one once where uh, you actually have the light shine in it the right way, and a crucifix will project on the wall, um, this kind of thing. And this becomes a big part of uh, the hidden Christian tradition that you see in Japan. And there's actually a lot, there was a good amount of hidden Christians because they realized that like, A, we can't, you know, we can't continue on, we can't win this fight. Um, and that become that turns into a 300-year witch hunt within Japan of we have to find all the Christians, flush them out, and kill them. And the reason they're really killing them is because they weren't going to show... What? 300? Did you say 300? Uh, so that's yeah, just, that's just a long like, time. Late, I, I'm trying to get my mind wrapped around yeah, that. That's late, a long witch hunt. Late 1500s to I mid mean, 1800s. Trump's been, on, Trump's been on like a two, three year witch hunt, evidently. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. This this is a this is a high quality witch hunt. And you had <laughs> we uh Japanese uh, Japanese work pretty hard when they're coming to flush out Christians. I'll tell you that much. So um. A lot of anti-Christian laws on the books, and pretty quick off, the authorities figure out like that they're hiding in Shin Buddhists. And so then there starts being a lot of anti-Shin Buddhist laws on the books. And there's actually parts of Japan where it's more against the law to be Shin Buddhist than it is to be Christian, because they figured out that there are no Christians, but they're sure Shin Buddhists, and they're probably hiding something. 
And so there's actually parts of Japan that all the way into the late 1800s, it's against the law to be Shin Buddhist, and it's also against the law to be Christian. And you actually see a lot of this like double standards. Um, but it's, it's really fascinating how they would um, have these tests to find a Christian. So they would have these official government pictures of the Virgin Mary. Very official daimyo property. And they put it on the ground and they walked up to someone, prove you're not Christian. How can I prove I'm not Christian? Prove it by stepping on the Holy Virgin. No, no, you're obviously Christian. Off with your head. Yep. Oh, poor virgin. <laughs> yeah, I feel. I feel like Christians should. Uh, if you're listening right now, if there's any of you out there, uh, you know, be a uh, be buddy buddy with the Jodo Shinshu. I mean, I after that's fine. The moral of this story for me. I mean, we take a couple for the team too. And so the funny part is, because of this, we actually end up forming our own Inquisition. And for the next, you know, 300 years, we have our own Jodo Shinshu Inquisition that's actually going out to looking for deviations with our our teaching. And so we're saying, like, we have to be better than this. We can't let the government get after us. We need to be very clear in what we're doing. And so they go out, and they'll go find, look for these secret Nembutsu groups, these secret Shin groups, these groups that are outside of the norm. And if they find them, and they're like, you're not practicing Jodo Shinshu the right way, we're going to tell the government. So they tell the government, these people are bad people. They're almost as bad as Christians, even though they're, like, our own people. And the government would be like, that's not going to work. Off with their head. So is it wrong that I feel great relief that another religion has this history of, you know, killing people who didn't believe right? (laughs) I really don't think that there's a religion anywhere that doesn't have this history. I was thinking about that on the way over. And the only one I can think of is the Baha'i faith. And it's simply because they're not old enough. (laughs) <laughs> they haven't been around long enough to like behead people. No, I, I really, they are pretty new. And I don't yeah. know about the Sikhs either. I don't know what the infighting within the Sikhs have been. Yeah. But I, yeah, I'd have to look at some history there, but now, nah, okay. We're someone's Googling right now. You're already <laughs> texting and emailing and well, you're not doing that. Cause that's slow. You're, you're tweeting this. There's going to be comments so, but, on there. Yeah. Caitlin yeah. Masher Mace is full of it. <laughs> So, okay, this, this is a religious, uh, I'm putting quotes in the air there, uh, spiritual community, communities, plural, uh, of an alliance here. I mean, we have people who are, they're not really religious, but, but they grew up religious. They're kind of spiritual. I mean, we're all spiritual to a degree. And everybody, everybody's spiritual. Um, why, why, why religion? Why Buddhism? Why, why any of this? I mean, if, if, this, if, if we really look at all these religions, as you had said... And they're all violent at the end of the day because they're all power hungry and they're scared of getting demolished by the other. Um, what's the point? I'm gonna I'm gonna throw down my devil's advocate Bill Maurer card. He 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 hates religion for these for these reasons. Yeah, um, I think there's one simple answer: you're all going to die, and everybody's afraid of dying. Um, so. I have to pay my own way through seminary. Um, it's just kind of part of the aspect of being a seminarian and going through that process is it's expensive and I still have to find, have housing and you know, everything else. And so I work a nine to five or in my case, a 24 hour, 72 hour. And so I'm a paramedic and I have had both the pleasure and the horror of watching a lot of people die. And the one thing I've learned is everyone is, uncertain of what's going to happen when they die. 
And religion in itself is answering that question is, do I need to be afraid? And for Shin Buddhists, our faith structure says you don't need to be afraid because when you die, you lose your attachments, you're no longer attached, and you are going to continue on to the pure land of Amida Buddha, which there's a whole, I could talk for three hours about what that actually means, but your rebirth is settled, everything after that is settled, and so you don't need to worry. And so it takes the fear out of death. And I think Christianity and Judaism and Islam and everything else, that is the main question and the main focus. And so, especially for Buddhism, um, the country of Bhutan has been called the happiest place in the world. It's the only place that measures gross national happiness. But at the same time, the average Bhutanese person would think of their death five to 20 times a day. They focus on their death and they understand their death and they know the fact they're going to die. And so the only truth in life is that you're going to die. And so we build these systems and this culture and the society around that, you know, all as a monument to our fear of death. Like, it's funny, before we started the podcast, we were talking about, you know, homosexuality and how that's affected the Christian faith and how that affects rural versus uh urban America. And that entire power structure has to do with us grasping onto morals that we want to exist. And in the end, it's all just fear that we're going to die. And so, I mean, and we feel the desire to fight for religion or the desire to fight for land or the desire to fight for oil or the desire to fight over memes (laughs) simply based on the fact that we're afraid we're not going to get the last word. Because we're afraid before that last word's going to happen, we're going to die. And then here's the key. You're going to die. Every single person that's listening to this, your death is imminent. Any minute now, or possibly 80 years, it's hard to say. It makes you wonder if, if we were a species who didn't fear death. Like animals, of course, they avoid death. They, they run from the cougar or whatever's chasing them. But... I don't think they have the same type of fear as humans have. If we were a species who didn't fear death, would there be any religion? I, that question fascinates me. And I'm not sure there would be. It's, it's hard to say, but I mean, it's at the same time, that's one of the reasons why within Buddhisms and especially within Mahayana Buddhism, we say it's um, very lucky to be born into human form. And we also say it's very hard to be born into human form. So there's um, a, I'm trying to come up with a good word in English, like a mantra that we say, something called the three treasures. And it starts off, hard is it to be born into human form. Now we are living it. And we believe as Buddhists that the only manner in which we can hear the Dharma, hear the teachings is being born human. And only then can we fully understand both the joy of life and the fear of death. And by understanding that we can understand that it is important to embrace the teachings. And so I think that's true for Christianity and that's true for Islam and Judaism. And for us, we say there's 84,000 Dharma gates, 84,000 paths to enlightenment. And so for me and for my Sangha and those that come to my temple, Jodo Shinshu and the Nimbutsu is for us. I am not one to say that Christianity and belief in the Abrahamic traditions is not one of those 84,000 Dharma gates. 
However, I don't think it is in our best interest to end the lives of these people prematurely before they can fully understand the teachings that they need to understand. This has got really somber. That's what happens when you talk about violence. Yes, George Patton would say it's beautiful. I mean, so George, the the World War II general, he... uh, My wife is related, by the way. Really? Her mother's uh, name, maiden name is Patton. So yeah, just a couple generations ago. Wow, I'm geeking out right now, actually. Like, I, let me pull my computer. I don't know if you guys... There's actually a picture of George Patton on my computer. Oh! Yeah. After, you know, after seeing... I saw the movie before I met my wife, and when she told me, I was like, oh man, that, dude, that dude's cray-cray. Brilliant, but cray-cray. Well, I mean... Most of the best artists of the world were, you know, crazy, and George Patton just decided to use, you know, human life as his paint. Well, if you look at that movie, <laughs> Apocalypse Now, that line, what is it? I love the smell of, is it napalm in the morning? Mm, I love the smell just, of napalm yeah, in the morning. Yeah, I just watched that movie, and it's like that violence is so inherent in human nature. It's sickening. Dick Cheney, Patton, I mean, it's all the same. <laughs> yeah, but Dick Cheney had to wear a glove the whole time it was shoved up, and we're done. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> I worked only for Halliburton people... for a long time, so like I have to be nice to Dick Cheney. I think it's in a contract somewhere I signed. If only people could have seen that gesture she made with her hand when she said that. <laughs> okay, so, so you said General Patton, and then I, I went off on my thing. Yay. and then we went, uh, You were saying. Oh, General Patton, often, he, uh, he believed that he had been reincarnated several times simply to fight war and to, you know... Yeah, no, he's, he was uh, he was crazy. He actually wrote poetry that like he had been in every battlefield from the Peloponnesian Wars all the way down through um, the Crusades and the Inquisition and through like the American Civil War and everything else. And that he continues to be reborn in order to fight these battles and to lead men into battle. And that he had died on the fields of Russia during the Napoleonic campaigns and everything else. And how it's so important that he continues to fight and how this was his time through his karmic conditions to be in World War II and to lead the Eighth Army to victory in Europe. You know, you know, we say, we, we joke, and I, I did too, crazy, whatever. Uh, and, and some of this may be to a lot of people, and yet the rootedness of this, and you had talked about the, that fear of dying, but justice is a part of that as well. Like, I, I want a just world. And I look at these pictures, I've got my wife and my kids, and they're all over the house. And then I look at you all, and you all, we all have family and friends that you would you would die for. And you would do certain things in the name of whatever, God, or idol, or dharma. I don't, it doesn't, doesn't really matter for the sake of their lives, and your own, right? Wouldn't you? For, for justice? Yeah. 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 So what's wrong with that? I mean, that is, that's I'm, the human condition, that's, and that's yeah. why it's hard to be born human. Yeah, uh, Miguel de la Torre, he's been on the podcast a couple times, and he had said, the first time he was with us, he said, I'm a violent man trying to be nonviolent. His choice is to be a pacifist Christian, but he's like, yeah, I'm really, I'm, but I'm, I'm like, the nature of me is I'm violent, and I get that my people are violent, and I understand the stories of their violence. So it's, you know, it's because we all, we all want to say either you're violent or you're a pacifist. Well, that's, that's just, that's too binary, and it's just not true, but... So what do what do we all think about violent religion, violent tribes, cultures that cannot resist? We talk about resist a lot. Resistance, resist, hashtag resist. When is that? Well, it does lead to violence in, in a lot of communities. Is that okay? 
in America. I mean, let's talk specifically for Buddhist and Christian listeners out there and agnostics and all the, all those in between that we have. Um, can you hashtag resist in violence in a way that is just for society? I worry that the very nature of human existence is a violent nature. Um, I don't know if there's ever been a period of human existence that wasn't marred by violence. And even as we're, as we talk right now, someone is on a battlefield firing a weapon at another person. It might be in Africa. It might be in Southeast Asia. It might be in a war that we don't even know is happening. And that's the thing is our vision of the world is very limited to people that look like us and people that think like us and people that talk like us and people that believe like us. And yet there's wars happening all over the world right now. And there's a probably, there's probably an American soldier right now pulling a trigger and sending lead down range. Um, And there's probably soldiers sending lead down range at them. And I don't know if there's a solution to that. And I wonder if trying to fight against the saying, we just need to end it, end it, end it, end it, instead of trying to understand why we're doing this. I mean, uh, even though this is going to be played at a much different time, Chicago this weekend, there was 56 shootings in the city of Chicago. Um, on Saturday, I ran a guy in my ambulance that was stabbed seven times. Um, this humans are scared and they respond with violence and whether or not it's done in the context of religion or done in the context of, yo, you're wearing blue in my red hood or, you know, throwing the wrong gang sign or, you know, a wife that doesn't cook food the right way for her husband or any other X, Y, Z reason, not that I'm saying social or domestic violence only happens one direction, but, um, Humans want to control each other through violence, and that's generally due to their own fear. And it's just really, really unfortunate and really sad. And I think we all, those of us that are religious, look towards religion in order to um, deal with that because it sucks. I think of myself as a nonviolent person. I used to be a pacifist when I was young. But then something happened when my, my son got hurt, and I charged into the situation like I was going to save him. And my, my brother said, you're like a mama bear, and you'll kill anyone who hurts your kids. And that's the truth of it, is, is if you harm me or anyone I love, I will fight to the death for you. And that's so ingrained in human nature that I can't pretend anymore to be a pacifist because I know I would fight for my kids' lives or, you know, my family's life. So are any of you guys Star Trek geeks? Yes, major. All of us, I think. I think think my wife came home, so let me go get her and she can join the podcast. Oh, that'd be great. So, (laughs) nice. Um, So I, I think that this turns into the star trek question is next generation there's very little violence until season seven you introduce the maquis and all that kind of stuff ds9 is nothing but violence from the beginning to the end and my favorite episode in the pale moonlight is captain cisco dealing with uh murdering someone actually murdering 
the Romulan ambassador in order to bring the Romulans into the war. And so millions upon millions of Romulans can die against the Dominion. And this is a representation of using what he believes is the greater truth and the greater good in order to free his people, but only from his understanding. And so when we talk about the word upaya, skillful means, he thinks he's acting with upaya, but he's an unenlightened being. And this kind of comes back to the issue, and sorry, I'm bringing it full circle, but I'm a huge Star Trek geek. Um, <laughs> um, he, uh, he thinks he knows what's right, and he thinks the Dominion is evil and wrong and everything else, and so thusly he's bringing in another race to fight this war and to help fight against the Dominion, and they eventually do beat the Dominion, and yada, yada, yada. But... Um, he's not an enlightened being and he doesn't actually understand all the causes and conditions going into this. And so when we talk about like using Upaya or using skillful means and we go to this king, the king's like, I've done everything I possibly can. I now must kill my enemy. The king's not an enlightened being. He's a foolish being with blind passions and limited sight and limiting understanding. So when the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, would give a lesson and he would tell Ryan, yeah, dude, it's totally okay to eat bacon and he tells y'all, you can't eat bacon for X, Y, Z reason. Shakyamuni Buddha understands this because Shakyamuni Buddha is enlightened and understands the causes and conditions which goes into everyone's lives. However, this king doesn't understand and Captain Sisko doesn't understand. And because of Captain Sisko not understanding, millions of Romulans died, which I'm not a huge Romulan fan. So, you know, that's fine. At least it's not the Klingons, you know. But, but was he the emissary then still or he not? Was, he was the emissary, but he I don't was. think they gave the impression that he was an enlightened being. Yeah. Just, yeah, the emissary. Because he was still wrestling with that whole thing himself. Of he was. Yeah. What does it mean to be the emissary? And yeah. I don't even know what they're doing to me or for me or with me throughout that. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, that was my uh, my Star Trek. No, I think DS9 is fascinating oh, because it's so it, good. It, the way that it weaves religion and how people wrestle with that and how they fit into the just life. I mean, I just, it's almost more relatable in some ways to where we actually are than living in the next generation where it's, it's a world that might be calm, but it, it hasn't come yet. Well, and my biggest problem with the next generation is there's no money. (laughs) (laughs) Is anyone going to spend their whole lives wearing poor pajamas being like, (laughs) Reginald Barclay, you know, like being oh, like the butt of Barclay. every joke for okay. no money. Violence against Barclay, though, maybe. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> the dude turned into a spider, I'm yeah. just saying. <laughs> he was so annoying. So annoying. Okay, so I'm going to totally geek out, and this is totally off. Guess, guess, Go what I got guess what I did on Friday? What? I had dinner with George Sakai. You were at uh, Comic-Con? No, I had dinner with George Takai. I ate sushi with that George and Brad Takai. Yeah, so even I know who that is. Yep, <laughs> yep. And actually, I wow, got to, I I got to uh, drive them back to their hotel. So there's me in a car with George and Brad Takai. That is so cool. <laughs> that was the coolest thing ever. Was it awesome? It was amazing. And so the nice thing is, uh, George Takai is actually a Jodo Shinshu Buddhist. Oh. Being a Japanese American, um, he's a member of the LA Betsuin Temple was married by Reverend Briones, who is one of our, he's actually at Rinbon, so he's like one of our big head, big ministers. And so, yeah, they were in town for Comic-Con and uh, came by the temple. Diana set it up and then had to be out of town for a meeting. <laughs> oh, so Vesley, as her uh, 
loyal right hand <laughs> assistant, I got to uh, go have dinner with George Takai. That is it's so, so awesome. awesome. Is he funny in the flesh? Hilarious. <laughs> Good to know. His husband, though, oh my God, Brad Takai is hilarious. He's so funny and very, very entertaining. And George said he uh, he might go ahead and run for the Senate against Mitch McConnell because someone needs to. Uh, yes. Someone needs to take that guy down. Wow. In a nonviolent way, of course. <laughs> Phasers were on stun. <laughs> that is awesome. Did you make him laugh? I did make him laugh. <laughs> he, he was very funny. And actually, it was really interesting to hear his story because he's, um, he's got a new book coming out mm-hmm. and he's actually doing a mini series right now. And his, uh, a lot of his story and a lot of what he talked about us to and a couple members of our sangha was actually the experience of growing up in one of the Japanese internment camps. And the fact that during World War II, he was actually in one of the internment camps, but down in the Southeast. So he talked about how for him as a young child, he couldn't actually, he didn't know that he was in an internment camp. He thought he was at camp. It's like the biggest concern he had was going down near the swamp and getting bit by a water moccasin. But as an adult and looking back at this, realized that he was ripped out of his home, taken from California and shipped all the way down to Georgia and how he actually got shipped from one camp to another and how he was treated as not American, not human, but rather as, you know, an enemy, even though he had been born in the States and was just as American as anyone else. And we talk about violence and we talk about how this is perceived. And for Japanese American, a lot of them who were Jodo Shinshu Buddhists, um, an interesting note of history is all these guys were sent into the camps during World War II and a lot of them, to prove their Americanness, to prove how you know right they were, they actually joined the American Army. They formed the 442nd Regimental Combat Team and ended up becoming the most decorated unit in the history of the United States Army. They fought through the Anzio campaign. They fought through all throughout Italy and had over 100% replacement rate, which means every single person in the battalion was either injured or killed. Uh, they had more Medal of Honors, more Purple Hearts, more Silver Stars, more Bronze Stars with Valor devices than any other unit in the history of the United States military. And these are the example of Japanese Americans trying to prove that they are American. And the really messed up part of it is a lot of these people are Shin Buddhists and they weren't provided with Buddhist chaplains because we were seen as un-American. The first people put in camps, the very first people on the first day where all of the Jodo Shinshu ministers were instantly arrested and thrown in camps because we were seen as the most anti-American people possible. Now, I don't know if I would have been because obviously at the time there was only Japanese Jodo Shinshu ministers, so I don't know what they would have done with me. Um... But this is like a really interesting aspect of violence and how violence is perceived and even the the threat of violence without actually any violent acts. And so you've got these guys in the 442 that went off and they fought and they proved they're American and they come back to the United States and they're still treated like trash. It's the same as our uh, African-American soldiers and the same as, um, I mean, we look back now at the Navajo Code Talkers. And like, but they were having to go through the exact same thing because they weren't viewed as equals. And so it's, it's interesting to see these combinations and how they also intersect with religion in that this country at the time, even though we had freedom of religion, we didn't provide for that freedom of religion. And it's only within the last 27 years, 20, yeah, 27 years that we've had Buddhist chaplains within the United States military. 
And it's actually Jodo Shinshu, which is the um, ordaining body in the um, certifying body for chaplains in the military for um, the United States for Buddhist chaplains. So all Buddhist chaplains actually, while they're not all Jodo Shinshu chaplains, and there's actually a couple Zen chaplains, I have a really good friend of mine who's a seminarian with me who's uh, working on becoming a uh, army chaplain who's actually, he's a Zen, he's a Zen priest, nicest guy in the world. Um, and, but they're doing it all for really interesting reasons because a lot of the times is these non-Christian troops, whether agnostic or atheist or Wiccan or flying spaghetti monster or whatever else they decide to put on their dog tags, don't feel comfortable going to the more conservative Judeo-Christian clergy uh, with problems like, hey, you know, I think I'm into dudes because I'm 19 and I don't know any better yet. And hearing from the Southern Baptist minister, nope, you're not. Try again, go fire your gun. Like, it's not not productive. But this is also how we're encouraging violence. Mm-hmm. And so we've got these chaplains going into the military and they're military officers, and their entire job is to keep soldiers on the front line putting rounds down range. And we have acknowledged as Shin Buddhists and as Buddhists in general that our soldiers are also our Sangha members and they still need our support. And we are all limited beings and we're human and we're living these causes and conditions and we care for our families and thus we were willing to become soldiers and willing to kill. But what do we do after that? Because it doesn't make a difference whether a Buddhist, a Muslim a Jew or a Christian is pulling that trigger, they're going to uh, send the same round down range. But the question is, how do they deal with it afterwards? Once again, I made it somber. I'm sorry. We can go back to DS9. (laughs) Well, do you have, um, are there, uh, I don't know how to ask it. Are there practices around that? Because I feel like a lot of, in, what I'm familiar with, a lot of Christian traditions just kind of suck at this. Like they come home and then they want you to just get married and have babies and integrate into the community. And that's it. Like if you're depressed or have anxiety or suicidal, like too bad, we're not going to address any of that. And so do do your communities do something different? So for, for Shin Buddhists after world war two, I think there was a lot of integrate back into the community, but there was a very strong family structures to go back Mm -hmm. into and so I think a lot of your support actually came from that. Um, we're notoriously bad for pastoral care. Um, and I, when I say we, I, I mean specifically Shin Buddhists, just because it wasn't part of our jobs. Yeah, Our job was to spread the Dharma and to spread the teaching and to help with your rebirth, not so much to make sure that like you could deal with the things you'd done because the communi- the social structure this came out of had a lot more to do with, um, or came from a very f- strong social family tradition versus the individualist aspects of European um, and American culture. Yeah. So you come back and odds are your grandfather fought in a war or right. your dad fought in a war or your mom fought in a war. Uh, f- women fighting in wars in Japan wasn't uncommon, so you actually do get those experiences as well. And um, they were able to you know, help with that traumatic coping process. Um, we don't have any process or practices directly related towards like, Hey, you know, you went and killed 72 people, you know, with a smart bomb because you were an F 16 pilot. Um, but we will say, 
These are the causes and conditions you experience. This is the pain you're experiencing. It's real. It's genuine. It's okay. Yeah. Um, you will still achieve rebirth in the Pure Land, which for us is the goal. Um, say the Nembutsu. You'll be saved. Let's go to therapy. Let's go find you a therapist. Let's go find them sweet antidepressants. Let's go light up the bong, whatever it is you need to do in order to deal with this. So we're not going to say like religion is the answer to this question. Wow. You're living a human life. That's actually huge. And and maybe it doesn't feel like it from inside, but um, at least in the tradi- tra- Christian traditions I've been in, um, I actually came from a tradition that was actually super skeptical of counseling. And so that would be like a last resort and medicine. Oh my God. What are you, what are you talking about? Like those, that's not really an option. And so like, there's been, I think that makes it really difficult for some um, people coming back because they either they come into a setting where religion is supposed to be the answer. Well, you're depressed. We'll pray more. Well, you're struggling to relate. Well, you know, you just need to have another small group. Like, you need to do more devotions. And there's no understandingness or or willingness to say, maybe Jesus can't fix all this. Maybe we need to do some other things. So I think that's that's really good that there's that awareness. Uh, we We limit Jesus to the historical Jesus or the religious Jesus versus that universal Christ. Uh, sorry. You just got me there. Are you roaring? I'm roaring right now, like right. a lion. So, sorry. You're going to soapbox me right there. I'm going to go off on a trail. We really do. when you Because when you said that, I specifically, like, I know I know of comments like that in situations where, and I rolled my eyes and giggled a bit there when you said that, because uh, why, why we say Jesus can't do that. Well, again, I mean, it's, it's a word that we use to describe a specific religious person in a time that we can sort of come down and beam him to our space right <laughs> i'm gonna say yeah but I, I just think that it yeah spirituality is way bigger than that i think yeah i hope but so I, but i mean i think you, you, we've also we you and i've done that transcending and including bit yeah it's hard for a lot of religious not just christians but probably people of all of all kinds of faiths who have a hard time saying that your religion your spirituality can actually include and be a part of these other spaces yeah Medicine, right? Medicine, <laughs> I mean, counseling. Yes, all that, yeah. Yeah. Hanging out and having fun. I remember like <laughs> even yoga, for instance, because it is a practice of uh, of idolatrous bowing oh, down yeah, to yeah, another yeah. deity. Like, somebody told me that once, and I was like, well, why can't I just be good for you? I mean, I, oh, it's no. like physic- physically and mentally. And I have the videos, I, Ryan. <laughs> Of, it, of Hebrew alpha alphabet yoga, <laughs> where the lady like makes different movements based on the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But at least because she was open to including that in her own tradition. But then, Some people just dismiss yeah. it altogether. But at least then she's not, you know, worshiping the gods of wherever yoga comes from because they don't really know. Well, now I need to know with Elizabeth's tradition growing up in uh, the Kool-Aid land. (laughs) 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 I mean, how how is this striking a chord with you? Specifically the the yoga stuff or just the... Well, I know I went off on a a rabbit trail based on what she was saying, but yeah, it's it's all-inclusive, so say whatever you'd like to say. Uh, Oh, I, I grew up definitely thinking that yoga was 
a sin and actually anything that came from another religion was wrong. And when I first read this, this C.S. Lewis quote that he said that he believes all religions have some truth to them, I honestly thought, oh my God, C.S. Lewis isn't a Christian after all. Because it freaked me out so much. And it took years before I realized that he was right. And and now so much of, especially Buddhism, um, rings true to me. But growing up, if you were called an ecumenical Christian, it was the worst thing you could be because you shouldn't include Methodists and Catholics in your faith. There was no inclusion. Yeah, I, I think what's best for all of us to, to realize, and, and, and even if we already know it, just to remind ourselves, to include the, the violent nature of not only our, of our humanity, but within our tribes and our religions, and also to say, outside of the beauty that we think that our religion brings, there is beauty in the other. All the different strands and strains of Buddhism and Christianity and Islam and Judaism, I mean... To say, to, so for me to have said that the, that the Christ resides prior to the first century Jewish, Jewish sage beyond the resurrection, like that would have been ludicrous as well, but why not? Well, yeah. I mean, we know that he, there's implications in the way the story is written that he was there at creation and that he is Lord of creation. We see, and in John 1, it's definitely implied that he was there. <laughs> and so... Like, I think that no recognizing that this is a bigger picture than what a lot of us were taught is important, not only for, for widening our view, but even just having a good biblical theological understanding. Um, when we limit it, that that's the end of the story. And, and I think a whole different, this is a whole different issue, but um, some religions look at, like, Islam and think, oh, it's such a violent religion, and they're they're so violent, but God, we aren't. And I we're, think we're as, so pure, right? And I think as as we've talked about tonight, every religion has something that we just think, oh shit, I'm embarrassed by that, because we're all just human, and every religion is just made up of humans. And so, acknowledging our own traditions' fault is a huge thing, I think, and not just blaming one the Islamic faith for violence, but seeing it's in all of us. Yeah. I remember sitting down at a convention in Denver back, I was in seminary, I think it was my last semester, about o- 02. And some, some person, I don't know who he was, he stood up and he acknowledged the, the Native Americans that were in the room, the indigenous people. And, and he basically had said, we, we plural are sorry we need to recognize this land. We are sorry. And I mean, I, I was, I was super young at the time and I was like, my mind was being blown. Why are we sorry? And yet, and yet I go, this, this guy's right. Um, yeah, we're sorry. You have to, you have at some point you have to come to grips with, you, you say, well, because so many people say it wasn't me. It wasn't my family. But yeah, it, it's you and it's your family. And it might not have been you specifically, your, your hands or your words, but we're all interconnected. I mean, there's that interdependence, rootedness within Buddhism. And I hopefully believe that it's in Christianity as well that we had to come to grips with. I think coming to grips with your past, even if you don't think it's violent, like I posted this on Facebook today that um, 
I was responsible for homophobic thoughts in other people when I was a young woman because I wholeheartedly swallowed what the church taught me. And so even though I don't remember saying anything horrible to a gay person, I know my thoughts and attitudes and feelings about gay people perpetuated it. And I am responsible for, and and I can't blow it off and say, oh, but that's what I was taught and I was dumb and I didn't know any better. Because there were people who chose not to believe that. And I chose to believe it when I, up until I was 21 or 22. I'm responsible for that. And I'm responsible if I created any violence toward people who were different than me. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> On behalf of all gay people everywhere. Oh, uh, I so I I did that at my ten year high school reunion. I, I went I went to one of the kids in our class who who is gay and he's married now. And I apologized and and he he said what you said. He said it's okay. <laughs> he said, he's like yeah. He's like I, I grew out of it. But I but I, but I said it was for me. It was therapeutic for me to say I'm sorry. Damn it. it it's almost like quite <laughs> guilt because like my my one of my best friends from high school is gay and there's this guilt that I. If I did anything or said anything to make her hate herself, you carry that around and think, God, what a bitch. How could I have done that? It's that white guilt that doesn't go away or that homophobic guilt that doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah, and then maybe this is our lesson for tonight after all of this is it, yeah, saying I'm sorry, even if it wasn't you specifically. Yeah, mm-hmm. sorry. Mm-hmm. I tell my daughter when she says, when you say you're sorry, though, that means you got to change. <laughs> That's that's the old school badness to me. You better change if you say you're sorry. <laughs> I feel like you need to slap the table when you say that. <laughs> Drive it home. Oh, man. <laughs> Throwing down the badness guilt right there. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. Yes. This was awesome. And we appreciate you, your time, and yeah, the work that you're doing, not only just within your, your community religiously, but also in the community at large in Denver. Saving the world, literally. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so... If you like this episode, please share it on iTunes, or we're also on Podbean. That's our host site. And uh, you can tag us on Facebook at Brew Theology and Instagram, also Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Cheers. Cheers.